Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August 22nd, 2014. This is episode 1411 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. Yeah, that's right, Friday, Friday, Friday. Not monster trucks, but monster calls. Your calls to the Think Line. 866-65-THINK, 866-65-T-H-I-N-K. For those of you that need the actual numbers for whatever reason, 866-658-4465, 866-658-4465. This is a pre-recorded show, of course, so call that number right now. You're not going to get me answering the phone. You're listening to a recording. doesn't work that way, but you'll get a voice message service. Leave me your question or your comment, formula to do that, and get your call on the air. Call from a quiet location. If you're on a cell phone, make sure you have some bars, no weed eaters, no chainsaws, no lawnmowers, no back of motorcycles when you're calling. I'm serious, yes. Make your point or ask your question in one to two sentences and then give me your details. I'm not being strict to be mean. I'm being strict to help me screen your calls faster and to give you the best chance of getting on the air. That's the formula I look for. That works the best for the show. With that, before we get to your calls, let's take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today is a company that I've been doing business with since, well, 1994. 1994. I should be able to just say, I've been doing business with them since 1994. It's Backwoods Home. Go subscribe. That should be my entire sponsor spot for them today. I mean, if you really think about that, that's 20 years. It really is the case, though. I found them right after I got out of the Army, and I was living in a big city, and I missed my rural roots, and they were my way of reconnecting. And a lot of the information I've taught you over the years, I either learned in Backwoods Home, or I learned about it, and then I evolved beyond it, you know. Uh, so they really do have a big part to play in the Survival Podcast. It's great that they ended up being a sponsor. Uh, check them out today. They're at BackwoodsHome.com. They do have a special offer for you if you're a first-time subscriber and a member of the Survival Podcast Support Brigade. So check the benefits section if you're going to sign up. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. Long-term sponsor, four years plus they've been with us now. I mean, what a great skill to, uh, to learn. And how many other skills can you learn by making a couple knives? You have really easy ways to get started. Pick some handle material, a basic kit, do some sharpening, get a book or a DVD if you're not sure what to do. Call them up if you're not sure what to buy. Dads, what a great project to do with your kid. There is not there is not a kid in society who, who if their dad comes to them and says, hey, son, you want to learn how to build a knife with your dad? They're going to be like, no, I don't want to build a knife, especially if you get them before they're completely engulfed in, like, the video game years, right? If you get them at, like, 9 or 10, man, building a knife with your dad, that's got to be cool. Check it out today, knifekits.com. They also do a discount for members of the Support Brigade. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year here, 1411. We have uh, three good ones as usual from Alex today. The Battle of Grunwald and the Peace of Thorn, China, the Grand Canal, and Henry and Son. If you want to read Henry and Son or the Battle of Grunwald and the Peace of, the, of Thorn, you will have to go to tspwiki.com or follow the link in today's show notes for the year 1411 because I'm going to read to you 
China and the Grand Canal, because I think it actually has a lot to teach us about today in a way you will never, ever see coming unless I've really gotten into your head. If when I give you my take on this history segment, you're like, that's what I thought he was going to say, I'm living between your ears. Anyway, with that, China, the Grand Canal. China's Grand Canal between Beijing and the port city of Hangzhou has fallen into disrepair over years of Mongol rule. So the Yongle Emperor has assigned 165,000 laborers to dredge the canal, dig reservoirs, and build a dam in order to maintain a high water level in the canal. In the past, larger barges were be required to offload on smaller barges over certain stretches, which slowed transportation of goods and added considerably to the cost. In 50 years or so, the effort will lose some of its value as the port of Hangzhou becomes clogged with silt. My take by Alex Shrug. This is this work is more politically significant than it seems. The current capital of China in Nanking in the south is making such radical improvements for Beijing in the north. It's like having a railroad line to the to the middle of nowhere. Beijing looks a lot like nowhere to the Chinese bureaucracy, intellectuals, and elitists who live in Nanking. Making improvements to the canal is a signal that the center of power is moving north to Beijing. So that's what was going on in the year 1411 in China. See, all this political gaming and stuff is nothing new. But here's my take. And again, if you if you are on to what I'm going to say when I say it, Jack Spierko's living in your head. How do we take this forward into the modern society? The bridge to nowhere in Alaska? No, 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 no. Um, the winds of change and not reading them properly and how dangerous that is. See, that was an indication of what was to come. It would have been real easy in 1411 to look at that and go, yeah, they're building, they're re, you know, getting this canal going so they can sell crap to people in Beijing. Beijing is a nothing city. Beijing is the future of China. Beijing today is China's capital, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years later. Beijing was the future. And the wind of change was, hey, They're doing this. There's a reason. It's going to matter. In our current world, there are many things shifting and changing. The public education sector, the employment sector, the economic sectors, all of these things are shifting. If you'll you know, do the old trick of sticking your finger in your mouth and licking your finger and holding it up, the wind's pretty easy to read with most of these things. Most people aren't reading the wind very well at all today. They don't even know there is a wind. They think things just are what they are. Those people are going to get hurt, and the people that capitalize on the way the winds are blowing and set their sails properly, they're going to be heading in the right direction. Did you get that one? If you did, I'm serious. It's a heart attack. I'm living in your head. Uh, I almost don't want to know <laughs> if anybody got that. Anyway, with that, let me remind you real quick before we get to your first call today. Um... We do have something called the Members Support Brigade for new members. This is where you can help support the show, 18.3 cents an episode. And uh, the way you support the show is go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members and join. What would you get? A bunch of content you can't get anywhere else. Every episode of TSP ever produced, every episode of the show ever produced is in zip files for you back there instead of downloading them one at a time. Uh, you'll get discounts to stuff you're probably buying anyway. The discounts will more than pay for the membership. Uh, check it out. And if you are a military person, law enforcement, or Peace Corps member, 
or a first responder like an EMT, a paramedic, or a firefighter, any of those professions, you do qualify for a uh, service discount, and that's for people that are active duty or prior service, either one. Email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com, and uh, put service discount in the subject line. One or two sentences is all I need. Tell me about your service, and I'll send you the discount code back. Do this before, not after you join. With that, let's go ahead and take your first call for today's show. Hi, Jack. This is Mark Collins from California. I had a question regarding ducks and chickens living together. Uh, quick background. We sold our house and sold our chickens with the house. Uh, just bought a new one. I'm getting ready to build a new coop and was wondering if I could start off ducks and chickens together in the same house, same pen, if they'll live together. I don't have a rooster yet. I'd like to get one, but I do not need to, so I can go without a rooster if that'll be a problem. Um... So thanks for the advice. Thanks, bye. No real reason you can't, but there are a few things you should be aware of. Let's start out with living conditions. So a lot of this decision, are you going to have like one house or coop, and then everybody's going to live there together? Is that going to work? It's going to have a lot to do with your total population because it's not the same as your total population of chickens or your total population of ducks. Ducks and chickens have decidedly different sleeping habits, homing habits, nesting habits. The nesting habits actually aren't that different, but the rest is. Chickens, when they're really little, kind of huddle up on the ground. But very quickly, if there's a way to get off the ground, their instinct is roost. With the exception of muscovy ducks, which are probably not going to spend much time in a house, you're going to have to really train them to get them to spend much time in any kind of a poultry house. Um, ducks generally don't roost. Not the ducks that we... Now, now somebody's going to say, well, wood ducks fly home to roost. I know, that's a wild duck. Domestic ducks generally don't roost. They have no interest in getting up off the ground much, except maybe to look at some things. And uh, they kind of all huddle up on the ground and sleep. And they actually spend a lot more time awake at night, uh, you'll find, than chickens do. If I go out in the middle of the night to take a walk around the property, uh, the ducks know I'm there and they're quacking at me and stuff like this. And I mean, sometimes I might get up, just wake up in the middle of the night and be like, yeah, I have some on your head and you, you know, you can't, you're not going to go foot right back to sleep. So you might take a walk outside for a couple of minutes at 2 o'clock in the morning. A lot of times the ducks are out kind of wandering around, especially if the the moon's up or what have you. Chickens are out. You go into the duck house that we have in the middle of the night and you try to pick up a duck to take off. You go into a chicken house in the middle of the night, they just sit there like, what are you doing, man? Why are you picking me up? The same chicken that would flip out if you tried to pick it up in the middle of the day. So they're, they're not bad roommates. They just have different characteristics. The biggest issue is the roosting. Because here's what you have to make sure you have. You have to make sure you have, if you're going to put them in the same coop, a big enough space where you can put your roost for your chickens on one end and give the ducks a nice floor space on the other end so the chickens don't spend all night long crapping on the ducks. We recently massively increased the size of our chicken uh, flock and we'll probably continue to increase it until we end up with a really large population of laying hens because Dorothy wants to start selling eggs. When we just looked at the body count, we decided that the ducks and the chickens really didn't need to live in the same place. So we put in a little 8x8 uh, tough shed thing, and we paid 1200 bucks to put it in for the ducks, and they're on a different rotational area 
for grazing than the chickens. They get along just fine. Sometimes the ducks want to go over where the chickens are and we let them in. No problems. Sometimes uh, late at night, maybe half an hour before bedtime, we let the chickens out on the main property. Much longer than that, they cause too much damage to garden beds and things like that. But late at night, they just want to chase grasshoppers and get out in the big grass and whatever. So there's no problem with them. We cohabitated our geese and our ducks, our geese and our chickens for a while. We only had uh, six geese, so four geese, and about a dozen chickens. And there was plenty of room in there for everybody. That worked out really well until the female goose went broody, started laying eggs in a broody nest, and tried to murder chickens. And this was the, the gentle goose. The female was always the one that wasn't a jerk to anybody. And when she went broody, she went nuts. I don't see that happening with ducks. So we then separated the geese, and the geese have remained separated, though I think they could cohabitate again. But again, it's a body count thing. So as long as you have enough space, and you can arrange your roosts so that at least 50% of the floor space is sufficient for the ducks at night, and the ducks won't be getting shit on by the chickens, it'll work. Um, your, your ducks, though, I'll tell you this. You've got to really condition your ducks to bedtime means bedtime, go to bed. And that it's time to go back into wherever you want them to go. And getting them into a house may be more complicated than getting them into an area. So that's another thing to consider. Our ducks have a little fence that I built for them out of 16-foot hog panels. I think there's four of them, and they, they kind of latch on to, uh, to a piece of horse fencing, so it's, it's bigger than that area would seem. Like two come out, and then two make a big bend, and then the whole back is done with the horse fencing. We open that for them in the morning. I put out a video on it. They come running out. They do their thing. At night, they're kind of milling around over there, and I've got them trained now. I can walk out and go, go to bed, and they all go in there, and we close them up. And eventually, they go in their little duck house. And if we were worried about predators with them and all, I could go out, you know, maybe an hour later and close the door up. And I could probably condition them to that. It's not like the chickens, though. The chickens require no incentive to go to bed. Once in a while, there's one obstinate one that wants to stay up a little later than you do uh, during the long days of summer. But in general, it starts to get dark. Chickens go to bed. Ducks, I'm telling you, if they had their way, they'd be out there playing around on midnight. So... From the other side of that isn't from like a functional standpoint, but if it's important to you that your chickens be closed up by a certain time, and it's not as important to you that your ducks might be closed up, just for your own convenience, you might put them in two different locations. But there's no logistical reason other than that. Ben Falk has a barn that he doesn't close up. It's open, but he's got dogs running around for predators, and the ducks come there every night. And the ducks let themselves out in the morning, and they're never closed in. And that works really well for him. And that's how that's the thing. Ducks are very, very self-sufficient. It's almost like the more you try to control them, the more work you create for yourself. And the more you just leave them alone, the easier they are to deal with. So you may not need a, a, to put your ducks in a coop is kind of where I'm going with this. If they have a shelter that's, that's available to them, even like a three-sided shelter, Uh, and they know it's there. They'll use it when they need it, and they won't when they won't. You know, they won't need it. They won't use it when they don't feel they need it. Their only concern then is predators. So another option for your ducks might be, you know, you can put it right with your coop, little three-sided shelter big enough for however many ducks you're going to have, and have kind of that you know coop and run model. Where even if you let them out to free range or paddock shift, you have like that sacrifice area at night. Put your ducks in there, and if you have that. 
done with electric wire around the top and the bottom, you're going to keep your predators pretty much at bay. So that would be another uh, tactic you could use. But can you put them together? No problem. It's just the logistics might be a little bit complicated. So I wouldn't worry about any safety issues. Your rooster's not going to hurt your ducks. It's just not. Duck drakes are tough. I'll say this. Ducks are tanks. Um, when you get ducks and chicks as day-old birds, the ducks feel a lot, just feel about just as soft and weak as a baby chick. And they're about the same size. In a week, the duck's growth rate far exceeds the chicken's. At like three and four weeks, the duck, when you pick it up, you can just feel the muscles. I mean, ducks are tough birds. And uh, you're, you're just not going to have an issue with your chickens picking on your ducks. Um, ducks seem like goofy clowns, and they seem like, you know, uh, little characters, and they seem kind of fragile with their little waddling and all. But they don't take bullying at all. They really don't. About the only thing that bullies our ducks is the geese. The chickens... You know, the chickens might come after the duck, and the duck might move a little bit. And if the duck moves a little bit, and then, like, the chicken keeps up its crap, it's like, okay, I tried to give you some space, and they turn right around like little tanks, and they go right at the chickens and, and push them back to wherever the hell the chicken needs to be, and they go on about their duck business. Um, they're both great birds. I have to tell you that from a standpoint of productivity, uh, the ducks haven't started laying yet, so I'm going to go with the chickens, and I still think I'll feel that way later. But from a, a standpoint of personality and enjoyment, I have a lot more fun with my ducks than my chickens. But I think you'll enjoy them both. Give it a shot. Let's know how it works, and let's uh, take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Leo from Iowa. I just had a quick question about meat birds. We uh, are wondering if free-ranging can contribute to toughness in the meat. Uh, we range a raised Cornish cross uh, for a couple cycles now, and the first cycle we raised uh, while being a little bit past their prime uh, were very, very tough when we cooked the meat. Um, it probably waited about, I think, in 16, 14, 16 weeks. Um, so they were a little bit old, but uh, they were also, I mean, a lot tougher than we thought they should be. Uh, we're raising another cycle now, and are just curious if uh, they have to be somewhat confined or if that exercise will, uh, will toughen up uh, the meat. So any thoughts you have on this would be great. I love the show. Thanks a lot. Um, whether you're doing Cornish Cross, Heritage Whites, or some of the other broiler breeds, running birds on pasture will certainly lead to a bird that's a little bit tougher than a bird that sits in a box and doesn't move for its entire life. The fact that the muscles are being used at all is going to lead to building muscle, And to a larger strength type thing than if the bird just sits around. In other words, when you look at something like the tenderness of veal, veal is not just a young cow. Veal is a young cow that's been highly confined for it to be as tender as expected. Now, that's not the origins of veal. That's a modern take on veal. But, I mean, the original veal was you killed one young cow a year, And you, you were really sacrificing it. You're getting this young, tender meat. But the reason you were doing it was actually to get the stomach. Some of you know exactly why. And some of you are like, why the hell would you want the stomach? Well, inside the stomach is something called rennet. And rennet's what we use when we make cheese. And today you can buy rennet, uh, either true rennet uh, from the veal industry or synthetic rennet that does everything you need to do with cheese. And it's dirt cheap, and you can get it anywhere you want to, and you can order it online, and it'll ship it to your house in a bottle. 
and you make all the cheese you want. And, you know, 15, 16, 1700s, 1800s, if you needed to make cheese, you couldn't just go down to the shop and buy some rennet. It was actually a highly valued commodity because it required taking a cow and killing it early. So we killed one beef, you know, baby beef cow a year. That's kind of the origins of veal. And then modern veal is this confined cow. So it's the same type of thing. If you just think about, if you take your fing your two hands, put them together like you're going to pray with your hands up, and then do like interlace your fingers, interlock your fingers and put them down, and then like put your hands down so you look at, at the top of your two hands with your fingers interlocked and your hands flattened out. Muscle fibers are a lot like that. And the way we build muscle is we actually slightly tear those fibers. And the more work we do, the more tearing of those fibers we do. And as those fibers rebuild, they become larger and stronger. Kind of like if you coppice a tree, more grows back than was originally there and more vigorously. So when you're pumping iron, man, lifting weights, and you're building up that bicep, you're doing it by, by breaking down and rebuilding those interlocking fibers of muscle. So we can do it at an intense level, but even just walking around and, and, and moving around does a little bit of that. That's why we get stronger the more we move and do and are active and the more we build those muscles. So those birds doing more activity than they would normally do is going to lead to a slightly tougher bird. A pastured uh, Cornish cross is generally not as tender overall, and I'll talk about mitigating this in a second, as a factory-raised Cornish cross bird. It doesn't mean it's not as good. It just means there's a different texture to the meat. Your big problem is age. Male Cornish cross, six to eight weeks, nine weeks maximum, dead. The females, if you have like Cornish hens, Cornish cross hens, yeah, at ten weeks maximum, dead. They'll get bigger, but their qualities peaked right there. So that's, that's a big part of it. I'm actually surprised you didn't have high mortality at 14 weeks or more. A lot of these birds will just drop over. So you must be in a really temperate climate where these birds can handle what was going on. Or maybe you thought you had Cornish crosses and you had something like a heritage white or something like that. But I've seen a lot of mortality when people put off killing day with these birds. I don't think they're an evil bird. I think they're, they're a great bird for their purpose. I just think that they need to be handled that way. They, you, unless you're caponing the males and going a little bit longer, um, you really want to just stick to that harvest schedule. Eight weeks is optimum. That's why they're so pot. It's not just the quality of the meat. It's that I can take a bird, two months later, whack, boom, 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 inside the, uh, the automated plucker. And if you're doing a lot of them, you want to get one of those plucking machines and zip, 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 and, and off you go. Now, here's the reason, though, a lot of homesteaders think that the birds they're raising are tougher than store-bought birds. If you go to a supermarket and you watch people buy chicken, for every one whole chicken you'll see purchased, you'll probably see a hundred people buy parts, legs, thighs, breasts, wings, okay? The reason this is important is that a breast of a chicken is a totally different cut of meat than the thigh and leg of a chicken versus the wing of a chicken versus a chicken's back, etc. For some reason, when we raise our own birds or when we buy from local producers and buy, we want to buy whole birds, and immediately we think Sunday roasted chicken and we put the whole bird in the oven. Nothing wrong with that. 
One way to get a little bit more tender of a bird, of a bird that's been pastured, is just cut the temperature back. You know, most people are roasting birds at 375 or something like that. Cut that temperature back to like 300 degrees and go with a longer time to get a fully cooked bird. And that right there, longer, slower cooking at a lower temperature, more tender meat. So that right there if you want to do the roaster. The other thing to do is consider cutting the bird up. Um, thighs and legs, parted out, skin on, slow roasted on a grill, on a slow smoky fire, barbecue style, really great that way. Um, white meat breast, you either want a high temperature cook on a grill, quick and fast, and as soon as it's done, get it off. It won't be tough. The breast is not what's going to be tough usually. It's usually the legs and the thighs, right? And uh, Or slice that up, stir-fry it, curry it, do other things like that. Wings. You know, if you do a bunch of birds, put aside some as full-on roasters. That's fine. But take a, a big package of wings out. You know, cut up your birds, take your separate your wings. Either you can put your, your tips with your backs and stuff to make stock. Take your first and second joints of your wings freeze them in a couple packages, and do curried chicken wings or something like that. It's so awesome to do something a little bit different, or like Asian garlic wings. I've given the recipe for my my Asian garlic chili chicken wings before. I won't do it today, but awesome to do stuff like that. Ah, hell, I'll give you the basic recipe. The recipe for the chili garlic oil. Handful of black peppercorns into a pot. Handful of crumbled up red Thai chilies into a pot about five or six cloves of garlic chopped coarsely into a pot. Cover that with peanut oil, really low temperature. Bring the temperature up very, very slowly in that oil, watching it. When you see the little chunks of pepper and, and, and uh, uh, peppers and uh, peppercorns and garlic starting to just saute, little tiny bubbles just starting to cut off, come off them, Kill the heat, put a lid on the pot, set it aside, leave it set, strain it into a jar. That's the oil you use on the chicken wings, okay? So there you go. I gave you the recipe again. Um, but cook them in different ways. Cook the different parts in different ways. Let me put it this way. If I handed you a New York strip steak, which is basically off the backbone of a cow, it's the, the big side of a porterhouse, and you got the filet on the other side and the New York strip on one side. If I handed you a New York strip steak, And then I handed you a, 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 a chuck roast, same cow, and said, cook them. You probably wouldn't cook them the same way. Well, when we're cooking the thigh of a chicken the exact same way as the breast of a chicken, it's not that we can't do it. It's that you're probably not going to get as good a result as if you cooked them separately. So that's another way to do it. Now, when you're doing your roasters, this is what I really recommend if you're going to go ahead and roast it. Again, lower temperature, three and a quarter, 300 degrees. Make sure it's done before you pull it off, but slower, longer cooking. Eat the parts that you really think come out great, which is probably going to be mostly the breast on a Cornish cross that's been pastured. Whatever's left over from that roaster, cut that up and do something like enchiladas with it or something, that big, easy to get off meat. Then take the whole roasted leftover bit of the chicken. It's got like the back oysters and all that on it. Back oysters are a muscle, for those who don't know. It's just like right on the back, right above the hip. And it's this round piece of chicken. It's really good. And usually, I usually pull them in out and eat them. Most people don't, so they're still in there. So you take the whole carcass of the chicken, maybe cut it in half, and throw it in a pot and make stock. And whatever's left and whatever you pull off and whatever didn't go in the enchiladas or whatever, you know, put that back in 
and make a pot of soup. You'll get three meals out of one big roaster chicken for a family of two. If you have a family of four or five, you know, make two chickens at once and do the same thing. And that makes them go a lot longer. And with all the effort you have into the bird, or if you're buying them the additional price, makes it a little bit easier to deal with. Anyway, those are my thoughts on that. Uh, but I think your biggest problem is age. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Tyler from Alaska. I was wondering if diseases can be present in tree seeds and how picky I should be about choosing the source of tree seeds. I'm specifically, specifically looking at butternut and American chestnut, both of which suffer from fungal infections. There aren't currently any in the area. Maybe it's a little bit cold in Zone 3A, but I'm interested in planting some for food, the challenge of growing them, and to help preserve some threatened species. But I definitely don't want to introduce uh, chestnut blight or butternut canker to the area. Thanks for the show. Thanks. Bye. Okay, this is a pretty easy one. On the chestnuts, what you're really going to want to do is you're going to want to either grow Chinese or uh, hybrid chestnuts. And that means you want to get your seed from a source that does that. If you want to try growing some American chestnut and see if you can end up with some blight-resistant trees, more power to you. God bless you. We need it done. If you want to depend on these trees being productive, don't even try American chestnut seedlings. Um, we may, at Permaethos, take an area at some point and plant 2,000, 3,000 American chestnut seedlings and just see if any one of them hits the genetic lottery to be blight resistant. But when it comes to our long-term production, we've made a decision. It's important work. It needs to be done. But we need to know that the trees we're putting in, that we're going to get full productivity out 12 to 15 years from now, that when that day comes, they're not dying of blight. Chestnut blight, you're not going to introduce it to North America. It's been introduced to North America. It's happened. It's everywhere. There is no way that you're going to plant a North American native chestnut that's not going to be infected with blight unless, again, you hit the genetic lottery and it's blight-resistant. So that's not even really a concern. You're not going to introduce something that's already here. Your zone is edgy for chestnuts, man. I mean, Mark Shepard is doing it in zone four, and he was told it wouldn't work. So you're going to want to plant a lot of them and expect a lot of them to die. All right? Butternut canker, we're not even sure where it came from. It's another fungal infection of trees. But the good news is you're not going to spread it with a nut. Okay? So you're not going to plant a nut, and like this nut is pre, pre-infected with uh, the butternut canker. Now what you do want to do, is you want to find your butternut so that you're going to use the seed from trees with no evidence of butternut canker on them. And here's why. It doesn't guarantee that that tree possesses the genetics that are resistant to it. But you know if you're selecting butternuts from a canker-ridden tree that it does have the genetics that are susceptible to it. So right now with butternuts, for instance, we have an opportunity to do what wasn't done With chestnut. The solution to the chestnuts, right? Solution to the chestnuts um, dying of chestnut blight was, well, we got to save the chestnuts by cutting them all down. And it, when you think about that, it's the most ridiculous thing in the world. Let's say that you had a problem. Let's say we had a problem and we had, uh, we had a group of people that were starving. And we said, before they all starve, we better kill them all. I mean, that's what we did with the chestnuts. That's exactly what we did with the native North American chestnut. There were definitely trees, I would say, just on the law of mathematics, that would have carried resistant genes, and we probably lost them all. And all we can do is hope now that we find one someday. With butternut canker, 
there's two pieces of good news. One, we haven't gone out and killed all the butternuts yet, and I don't think that society would let it happen. Like, okay, we saw what you did with the chestnuts. This isn't going to work. You don't get to do that. It was the greed of timber companies that did the chestnuts in. So that's not going to happen. That's one piece of good news. The other piece of good news is that there are a lot of butternuts that are not affected by canker, and it does seem that healthy, intact, non-damaged trees are, are seldom affected compared to trees with scars and damages and open wounds. It's almost like the disease tends to need, not always, but tends to need some sort of damage to the tree to get in there and attack the tree. So a tree that's healthy, it's got a good skin on it, which is its bark and cambium, etc., is less susceptible. So if we right now start propagating butternuts from trees without canker, we're on our way to developing more and more disease-resistant butternuts. The other thing we can really do if we want to kind of accelerate this, if we can go to a place where there's a good stand of butternuts, 50, 60, 70% of them have canker, 20, 30, 40% don't, and select the seed from those without the canker, we are at least slanting the genetic lottery a little bit. There's no guarantees, but we're at least starting to try. We're saying, okay, look, canker, 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 no canker. I want nuts from that tree. We're at least start. We know that that tree, whether it's susceptible or not, it's currently standing surrounded by canker and not cankered. So I, I wouldn't worry about introducing this, right? And you're not going to do it with a nut. But I'm telling you, if you take an American chestnut and you try to grow it, you're going to end up with blight, if it even survives in your climate. So I would look at the hardiest northern uh, most grown chestnut seed you can get your hands on, whoever's doing it the furthest north in the coldest climate right now, and I would buy like a thousand seeds from them, and I would propagate a thousand trees. I don't care if you want ten. I would propagate a thousand trees. And I'd plant them close to each other, and I'd say, you know what? There's going to be knife handle material there. There's going to be shovel handles. There's going to be uh, all kinds of great wood and pole and stuff as I thin these things out. And your first winter will probably thin 500 to 600 of them for you. And that's okay, because nuts are cheap. Butternut shouldn't have a problem in your zone. It should be able to grow. Uh, again, you're not going to introduce this problem with a seed. A seed can't carry these infections. Um, but you do have some you know, things to think about to do it with the best chance for long-term success and the best chance of meeting your goal, which is to propagate a species that's currently threatened in butternut. The ship's kind of sailed with American chestnut unless we just keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. But it's going to take large-scale plantings to do it, and it's going on. And so far, it's not been found uh, anything that... That so far yet, we don't have a, a completely blight-resistant American chestnut tree. If we ever find one, uh, it's a game-changer. It really is. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Grizz uh, Zellohandel uh, from northern upper Michigan. I am currently in the process of building my first AR, and I guess the question comes down to what caliber do you recommend? I've got it pretty well narrowed down to uh, 6.8 or 300 blackout. Um, I know there's all kinds of wildcats and everything else on to, uh, over and above all that, but uh, not really into 223. Uh, Michigan law pretty much outlaws hunting with, with anything of a 22 caliber bullet, 
I guess it's too hard for them to tell the difference between that and a 22 long once you've collected your game. I, I don't know. But uh, just curious what your thoughts. Thanks. Bye. Um, let me just start out with a, 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 a preface, which is I would not recommend an AR as a hunting rifle in either caliber for deer in your area, which are significantly big-bodied animals, and if I was, I'd look at like an AR-10 and I would go, you know, basically you're shooting a 308, which is a, a fine deer round. Um, I consider at least the 300 Blackout to be a little bit light on power for what you're doing, and the 6.8 making up for it with velocity, which is not always a great idea with big-bodied whitetails that can go 300 pounds. It's up to you. Both of them will probably work. The 6.8 is not far off of the 260 Remington or the uh, 6.5 by 55 Swedish Mauser, which is one of the deadliest rounds on planet Earth on paper. They're both similar in ballistics, but the, the, the 6.5 has a sectional density of that bullet, which is what makes it so damn deadly. Uh, the 6.5 and 140 grains is a very, very long bullet. And bullets are like darts. Longer, heavy, pointed, better penetration. And that 6.5 round works so well because it just passes clean through. It's probably killed more moose than any other round on the planet. Now, they're the, the moose that they have in Norway and Sweden that aren't as big as some of our moose species in the United States, but they're still a big damn animal. And that round was originally made to make sure in the days of mounted cavalry, that if you shot a guy's horse out from underneath him, the horse went down. So that, that was the genesis of that round. And that's why when you look at things in that middle six millimeter category, you, you have a tendency to have an affinity for them if you know these things. But the 6.8 millimeter round is a shorter round with nowhere near the sectional density of the 6.5. So you're, you're getting some, some hyped up velocity, not quite a sectional density, should be fine on deer. 300 blackout, you're, you're a hair under like the 3030 Winchester, which I would say is adequate for, but marginal for big deer. Average deer, no problem. So I think either round is not a perfect deer caliber, period. That said, either will work, and I'd give the edge for deer to the 6.8. So it's more along the lines of what is the purpose of this rifle? And this is what I would tell you. If you're going to just use it as a hunting rifle and you want a cool AR that you're going to use for hunting, and it's also an AR, right? And it can also serve that role. Okay, fine. Probably give the edge of the 6.8. If you want an AR that someday you might spend the money and get the tax stamp for and put a suppressor on it, go the 300 Blackout. It's what it's made for. If uh, you want to be able to use standard magazines, and if you think that someday you might end up in a situation where something like pre-ban matters um, in another state, you might want to stick with the uh, 300 Blackout because you can use standard AR magazines. So those are your two cho those are your two that's your choice. But what would I recommend? I'd recommend you get a good sporting rifle in 308 or 306 because that's what's perfect for where you're at. Um, in your woods, I'd be out there hunting with something like either a, a Model 7 or a 700, uh, you know, and a bolt action, a good 
mid power scope, four to six power. Uh, or I'd, I'd step up in the lever gun category to something like the 444 Marlin, 4570 on those big white tails up there. You're probably not getting long shots unless you're in a part of the state where you're getting long shots. Uh, you're probably hunting deep woods, big body deer. I mean, those rounds are beautiful for that purpose. 450 Marlin, if you want higher end performance out of that big bullet and you don't want to hand load. Other guns that would be great. Uh, I would say the, uh, the, I guess it's the 7600 now. It used to be called the 760 Remington Pump in 3006 or 270. Those are both great options. I mean, I just personally think for the purpose of making deers dead and into tasty snacks, that there are better suited guns than an AR platform running a 2.8 or 300 blackout. Um, If you look at what those are really good at, it's being suppressed or stepping up lethality in a combat situation, right? So the 300 is an amazing penetrator. In fact, I almost think, now that I'm thinking about it that way, the 300 blackout with heavy bullets and its penetration capability, damn the paper ballistics, if you're, if you're dead set on this, go with the 300. It, it, because the penetration will make up the kinetic energy difference. It, it is almost improbable that on a double lung shot uh, at a range of 100 yards or less, you're not going to get full penetration on even a 300-pound deer. Where you get into problems is hitting major bone structures, like hitting a little bit forward into the, uh, the shoulder blade, especially if you've ever boned out a shoulder blade on a deer, there's a point where there's a V. And if you hit that V, that can turn bullets upward and stuff like that. I've seen it done to a 7-millimeter seven, seven magnum. I, I saw it turned by hitting that exact spot. But that's the exception, not the rule. I'd say 300 blackout for what you're doing with the caveat of, I would say neither, neither is an optimal deer caliber. Um, there, especially, again, if you're here, Texas, where a big buck, I mean like a big trophy buck, You know, weighs 130 to 140 pounds. I don't. Yeah, fine. Now the range you might have a little bit of issue with because you might you might get 300 yard shots down here, but they're just not that big of a deer. Um, Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Upstate Pennsylvania, uh, Northern Ohio, where these deer have the genetics from years and years of bulling, and this is why these deer are so much bigger up there. They have the genetics of not just surviving the cold winters, but bulling their way through three, four, five foot snowdrifts. It's a big-bodied animal that survives that. You come down into the south, you get harsh summers and, 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 and what have you, and it's a lighter-bodied deer that can deal with the drought and moderate browse and, and stuff like that and get by on less. That's why the genetics have shifted that way. In the heat, a smaller-bodied animal you know, does better in heat than a big-bodied animal does in the heat. So you're, you're in your area, from what you just said, You're dealing with the potential 250 to 300 pound live weight deer. And, uh, in a small elk, you know, or 450 pounds, you're, you're crossing into a different level of performance. I'm not saying it won't work. I'm not saying that nine out of ten times, if the shot's a decent shot, you're not looking at meat in the freezer. I'm just saying, you can go marginal with your ballistic performance, but why when you don't have to? Uh, building an AR like that is a great project. I understand why you would want to do it. I think you should do it. 
But if I'm going to go to the woods where deer run that big, I'm probably toting freaking Toa 3006, man. And if you want to know what Toa means, look up uh, look up the work of Robert Rourke. It's a Swahili word, but uh, Toa 3006, uh, not Toa two point whatever, you know, 280, 260. I, I no, no. I want big, heavy 30 caliber bullet cooking along at 2,800 feet per second. Is what I really want to to hit the bullseye, so to speak. There wouldn't fault you to do it though. I wouldn't. I think either will work, but I'd build the AR and get a hunting gun. Let's go on to the next question. Hey Jack, this is Wilson in South Texas. Uh, I have a question on preferred methods of uh, irrigation. Uh, this year, I started with some tr- few fruit trees and a plot of. Uh, one garden plot and I've grown to more trees in three to four garden plots. Uh, so far I've been able to use a water hose and after work come out and just manage it like that, whether with a sprinkler or by hand. Uh, and I've had no issues, but I know this, after this winter harvest, uh, I plan on ex- expanding and adding in more plots and I know it's just going to take more time. Uh, so what are some other suggestions you have as far as recommending either uh, soaker hose or drip irrigation um, or if there's another method that you have in mind? What are ways I can uh, just uh, increase time and just increase efficiency? I appreciate all the help. Thank you. Well, I'll tell you straight up, as long as your water isn't going to present a problem for you the way that mine does, that I would go with drip irrigation. Every single time, every single time, every single time if I had the option. I'd spend the money for whatever's required, I would get it in, and I would go with drip irrigation. If I wasn't going to go with drip irrigation, I would go with some kind of low-pattern sprinkler system, like hedge sprinklers, which is what I'm using now. I'd put PVC pipe in, I'd put the water where it needs to go, I'd put in as many zones as I had to to deal with my pressure so that I can you know, water in three or four different zones. If I can automate it, fine. If I can't automate it and I can do it with just on and off valves, fine. Um, watering with a garden hose sucks. And it also makes it more difficult when you go away. Watering with sprinklers that sit out and spray water everywhere sucks. I'm doing it right now because I have to in some areas. After putting in uh, these new garden beds using PVC pipe and sprinkler heads, I would probably have put them in everywhere right from the get-go. I'm looking right now at how I can retrofit them into some areas. And, again, the head sprinklers that are like $0.87 cents a piece, plus there's like a $0.50 cent fitting that they need to be able to screw onto a piece of half-inch PVC, it's not expensive. It really isn't. The biggest thing you have to do is dig a trench. Assuming you don't have any lines in the way, water lines, phone lines, electric lines, and things like that, you know, line the whole thing out, go up to Home Depot or Lowe's and rent a walk-behind trencher and trench that shit out with a trencher. And then you can, you know, you can take the trencher back. You can do all your trenching in one day. Try to do it at a dry time when you're not going to have a lot of rain, mudding things up. And then, you know, put your pipe in and you just, just knock the dirt in with a hoe. Um, if you're putting in berms and things like that, if it's a deep enough berm, you can do what I've done, which is lay pipe flat on the ground and put the dirt over top of it. That's another option. But drip is your best, and 
you basically are going to lay pipe for that too because you're still going to have to zone it out. And you have pipes that come up and then you tie into those pipes for your drip distribution. Drip's the best because it's the most efficient. Drip puts, puts all the water where you want it, when you want it there. And almost all the water ends up in the ground. Very little of it ends up evaporated. With spray irrigation of any kind, some of it's coming right out of the air, especially in a climate like we're in here in Texas. Um, and you're also going to water things you don't want to water. So if you don't want a lot of weeds coming into your bed from outside, if you're spraying with a sprinkler and you're watering not just the bed but around the bed, obviously you're going to encourage the growth of weeds and grasses up into the beds from outside the beds. If you're only dripping into the beds during the dry time of year, there's a lot of natural control of the stuff that's on the outsides. Just a thought. I love the idea of doing timers. I can't tell you how many times I've forgotten about water running and go out and I've, I've, I've way overwatered. And it's not so much in terms of plants, it's that I've, I've put all that water on the ground for no good reason. Uh, you can flush out nutrients that you've worked a long time to build up when you do that. And it costs money. And if you're you know, on grid water, you're paying for it. And if you're on a well, you're paying not just for the electricity, but you've also taxed the well pump by running it for so long. So... Uh, you know, unstopped. And I have to tell you, I did that. I did it just just yesterday. I let water running for way too long. Uh, so it's very important if you're going to be doing things with just on-off valves. Uh, I try to discipline myself, and I carry my iPhone. And every time I turn water on for any reason, if I'm not going to stand there and watch it run, I immediately set a timer. And I I, I can tell you many times it saved me from making that mistake that I made yesterday. All of a sudden, I'm, 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 I, I come inside, and I was going to work outside for a half an hour, and ah, I better check email, and I get into my email, and all of a sudden, doo -doo 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 the phone goes off, and I'm like, why the, oh, and go out and shut the water off. Um, so the nice thing, if you can automate your drip or your spray sprinklers, and again, I want a low pattern, an adjustable pattern if I'm going, that's why I love these little head sprinklers. And there's an, uh, uh, another little head for them called a bubbler I found. A bubbler's a little green one, and the water just kind of falls out of it. So if you wanted to water straight up under a tree and just wet the area, especially if you had like an irrigation tray there, you could set that bubbler, and it doesn't spray at all. It's just kind of like a mushroom pattern. And it only comes a couple inches, at a pat, even at full pressure, a couple inches away from the head. So even if you had it like... If you wanted to use an irrigation pan that surrounded your tree and you didn't want your pipe coming right up next to your tree because obviously you've got roots developing there with the pipe, you could bring the pipe up a couple, maybe a foot away from the center of the tree on the outside of the irrigation tray, bring it up an inch or two, put a 90 degree angle on it, and then bring your pipe back over the irrigation. So it just like comes over and set the bubbler there and that would be the, you know, the next best thing to drip. If you have drip, you just run your drip line across your tray. And, and again, I would be running drip if I could. If you can run drip, if you're not going to have any problem with drippers clogging based on your water quality, run drip. If not, adjustable pattern, uh, hard installed sprinkler systems will make your life so much easier. They really will. You don't have to pick up hoses. You don't have to drag hoses. Uh, and if you have it automated, it'll run itself. You can go on vacation. If you don't, You can write down a checklist, turn valve A for 15 minutes, turn off, turn valve B, and your caretaker will have an easy time doing everything for you. 
It'll make your life easier. It'll make your productivity better. Put the pipe in the ground. Let's take another call. Good evening, Jack. Ronald from Minnesota. How old is too old for canning lids, or is there a way to tell? My wife and I canned some 40 pounds of tomatoes this past weekend. My parents, whom no longer garden or can, gave us all of their supplies to use. Graniteware canner, jars, bands, funnel, the works. The best guess that they had was everything was purchased sometime around 1980. So the lids they gave me are at least 30 years old. My wife and I were concerned with the age, so went ahead and purchased new lids as well as some extra bands. Would the old lids still work, or is there a way to test them, or should I just toss all of them? Sidebar on what has happened to our money from the canning perspective. Everything we purchased was at our local store. The price tags were still on much of the supplies that my parents gave me. We paid for regular mouth lids and bands, $3.36, regular mouth lids, $1.62, and we looked at the graniteware canner just for reference sake. It was for the graniteware 33-quart canner with rack, $39.99. The price tags on my parents' supplies from 1980, regular mouth lids and bands, $0.79, cents, regular mouth lids, $0.39, cents, and the 33-quart graniteware canner with rack was $7.39. Thank you, Jack, and have a good day. There's zero concern on the jars, zero concern on the bands, and most people would just tell you to throw the lids away. I'll tell you how you can actually tell whether the lids are good or not. Technically, they have no real shelf life because they're metal and rubber with a sealant. The sealant, however, holds a certain amount of moisture content. The moisture content of that sealant is what allows that sealant, when it clamps down on the jar due to pressure and heat, to remain sealed and not let anything in. All you got to do is take the, the, the lid, flip it over, and you'll see a little bead of sealant on it. Take a fingernail and push it into that sealant. If you push your fingernail into that sealant and it just springs back up and nothing happens, you can use the lids. And if you push your fingernail into that sealant, And it goes into the sealant, and the, there's like a little, it stays down. It's like a groove, and it just stays there. It doesn't, it's not resilient. Throw them away. And the reality is, there's a 99% chance that even that one will work, and nothing will go wrong. If it doesn't work, it'll fail. You know it failed. There's a lot of FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt around canning. And the government, who thinks they're helping but they're not, has continued to add more and more reasons to have fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Uh, it used to be that you know my grandmother did certain things in half-gallon uh, canning jars, big, giant half-gallon jars. Now the government says it's unsafe to do that. It may not reach the temperatures high enough to sufficiently pasteurize the materials in the middle of the jar. Oh, I don't know, Asklon. I think if it's sitting in, the, in, the, in a freaking uh, pressure canner at like... Freaking 15 pounds of pressure for freaking 40 minutes in, 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 in steam that's 280 degrees. It's, 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 you know, that half gallon jar is not a shield of, of, uh, of darkness that, you know, keeps the enterprise safe or whatever. It's a freaking jar. And it's been done for, you know, ever. Um, we used to grow a lot of pumpkins and winter squash, and a lot of it would be chopped up and made into like a pie filling and then put into jars and then pressure canned. And we did that for years and years and years because you could just make pies and breads with it. 
no problem, and now the government says it's no longer safe. What changed? Physics? Chemistry? Biology? What, what, what changed? It could be dangerous. Whatever. Shut up. Go away. Um, so there's a lot of fear because the government keeps coming up with new guidelines for something we've been doing for longer than, frankly, there's really been much of a government to talk about. So I try to ignore them. So generally speaking, it's not like a bad lid doesn't lose its seal and somehow lets one little pathogen in from this little micro hole and then it infects it. it. It fails. And the problem with that is you put a lot of time, money, and effort into what you're doing and now you've had failures. So it's probably not worth a few boxes of canning lids. Now, this is what I want you to do for me. All of you people that can, that use the metal canning lids with the little rubber seal that we just talked about, I want you to raise your right hand to your deity of choice or to the honor of the survival podcast or whatever does it for you. And I want you to repeat after me. I state your name. So I'd say I, Jack Spirko. Don't be a smart ass and say state your name. I state your name. Hereby promise that I shall never piss my money away again on the purchase of an item I may use only one time in the form of a disposable canning lid, and I shall, from this point forward, go forth and do my canning with Tadler reusable canning lids. I will spend twice as much for a product that works 100 times as long. I will not piss away my money. I will not throw my money in the garbage can. And the only reason I will use... Metal canning lids is for the purpose of using the ones that come with new jars for free. And all future purchases of just lids, I shall use tattlers. All right. You can leave your hand up if you want to and also say, I shall not store my jars with rings on them. There's <laughs> really no point. <laughs> there's really, you can, it's okay, but there's really no point. The, the ring doesn't do anything once the jar is sealed. It keeps the lid on while the jar seals. And then if you take something from it and you're refrigerating it thereafter, it holds it on like a lid. All right. But you, you don't really have to pledge not to use the rings when you store your cans because, honestly, I I don't see the point of taking them back off. Um, I, I leave them on there because it's convenient when I get them out. But my grandmother used to yell at us for it. Um, I could be using those rings for other things. Like, What? <laughs> But she had a big box of rings, and all the cans went down without the rings on them. Some people say that it makes it less likely that you won't notice if the seal's compromised to not have the ring on the can. Uh, I just don't find that to be very accurate. If you have a seal compromise on a can, you, you tend to know it. But Tadler lids from now on, old lids, if you want to use them one time and throw them away, put your fingernail in them. I'd probably just throw them away. Get your Tadler lids from one of our suppliers. Ready-made resources uh, sells them. Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason sells them. And I believe Safecastle sells them as well. Uh, let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is David from Wisconsin. I was wondering what the best way to propagate wild elderberries would be. There are some on the marshlands around my place, and I'd like to get some started for a windbreak. Thanks for everything you do. Bye. Great question. I have some thoughts on it, but I thought to myself, who's the person that I know that knows the absolute most about propagating plants? And that would be Nicholas Ferguson, one of our partners in Permaethos, who's currently developing a plant propagation course for Permaethos. He's also one of my very best friends uh, in the world, 
Uh, Kelly just put a, a, a little uh, annotation when he was featured in one of the Perma Ethos TV videos. Nicest guy in the world. That that probably is the best description I could give of Nick. And he shares my love of all things beer and mead. Though um, I do have to say the one place he's lacking in knowledge is what a Saison is supposed to taste like. But that's okay. He's pretty good on the rest of it. But he is stellar on plant propagation. So... Uh, Nick, what say you? What is the best way to propagate the wonderful and medicinal, beautiful elderberry plant? Hey, TSB listeners, this is Nick Ferguson from permacultureclassroom.com calling in to answer the question on propagating elderberry. I'm going to assume that the species we're dealing with is Sambucus nigra because that's just what is most common. That's what I've got growing around me. That's what I've always dealt with. So, um... Most elders will root well if you take first-year cuttings from July through August. I use dip-and-grow, diluted about four to one, that's four parts of water, to one part of dip-and-grow. That should do you pretty well with uh, elderberries. Um, if you're rooting them, you'll use that, and you'll put them in a rooting medium of perlite or sharp sand and use a mist system. You want to make sure that mist system is set light enough that it's not keeping that sand or perlite completely saturated because you'll rot them. If you want to propagate by seed, which is so much easier, and you get so many more for so much less effort, which is what I do, um, you want to either give them six months of cold stratification or two to three months of warm stratification followed by three months of cold stratification. Now, you should have really good results doing that. These are really hard, dormant seeds, so you want to make sure you do that cold stratification and warm stratification if you can. And if you're planting stuff out in the spring, then that shouldn't be any problem because you can just do that over the course of the winter. So if you want to get really technical with the rooting hormone and not use dip and grow, the generic instruction, you can use 1,000 ppm NAA, which is naphtha seleniacetic acid, plus 2% captan. But if you really want any more specific directions or none of this makes sense, or it's a different species and you want really specific species instructions, you can leave a comment or email me at thepermacultureclassroom at gmail.com. And for any more information on me, go to permacultureclassroom.com. Thanks, Jack, for letting me answer this question. And to all the listeners, happy growing. Um, I have just a couple things to add here. And one is, and I don't know, and the other is, I, and I do know. Uh, the first one is the I don't know, but it may be, on the seeds. So... I recently plant, uh, propagated some Lucena, which is notoriously poor germination rate, 10 to 15% germination. And the scarification process for that, in other words, to get moisture into the seed, is totally different than the cold, warm stratification Nick just described for elderberry. So I would go with what he says and then maybe try what I learned by accident. So I use a boiling water scarification process for Lucena and Mimosa and some other leguminous trees. What that means is you boil a pot of water and you put the, the seeds in a container like 
uh, a ball jar, uh, like a canning jar like we just talked about, because they can handle the heat pretty well. Take the uh, water off the, the burner, give it a little bit of time, 10 seconds to come down from full-on boil, and then pour it into the jar over the seeds. Let them sit overnight, and then you plant those seeds, and you're supposed to get a much better germination rate. Well, I did this during a workshop where you have like a million things going on, and I forgot about them. I completely, totally forgot they were in there. They were in there for like four days, all right? I went and looked at them. They were all swollen up like when you make beans, and you make dry beans in a, like a, for a bean soup where they blow up. A couple of them had even popped like that. And I was like, oh, crap, this is all I have. It's all Marjorie gave me. I gave away all the rest of them. I thought, I'm going to see how they germinate. I took a wet paper towel. I spread them out on it, and I covered them over with a wet paper towel. I got like a 90% germination rate. So I'm thinking if, if elderberries are a tough, hard to get into seed as far as getting germination, soaking some for an extended period of time before planting them after the warm and cold stratification process may be a way to improve germination. But just because it works with A doesn't mean it works with B. But I think if you have a lot of seed, it might be worth trying. And if nothing else, soak it and look and see if any of them swell and then try germination testing the swelled ones. And with as prolific as elderberries are, you should be able to get five, six times the seed that you need. So that's that's number one. And that's just a, I don't know, but maybe. The other one is Nick's advice is really great for the caller because the caller wants a windbreak, and that means lots of elderberries. But if you know where wild elders are and you want some on your property, and uh, there's lots of them out there, and you want four, five, six of them, something like that, identify where they're at, look for new growing plants, plants that are maybe a year old. A lot of times they'll spread just by the roots growing outward. Wait till the plants go dormant, and go dig them up and prune off the roots, plant them while they're dormant wherever you want them, and you know nine out of ten of them will probably catch and grow. So if you want to really hedge your bet, get two plants for each location, and plant two in the same hole, and at least one of them will probably produce for you. Um, that's that's if you're doing a small quantity, it's you're going to get old and tired. It's going to get old, and you're going to get tired fast if you're trying to grow, you know, a hundred of them as a windbreak or something like that. But if you wanted a half a dozen of them and you had them growing wild, I would try just digging them up, um, and I might harvest some seed in the meantime to make sure that I had a plan B if that didn't work. Just saying. Uh, but elders are a native wild plant, and they produce by seed and by uh, by sending out runners in the wild. So there's no reason we can't just harvest that uh, ability and use it for our own uses. Uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. There's Richard in Idaho. Uh, I called in uh, before asking a question about lithic or rock mulching. Uh, I had seen it show up on some of the later episodes, so I'm I was just calling to uh, get more information on that. Background was I was watching a documentary on the Easter Island and, and uh, some of the myths about it, whether, you know, they were turned into cannibals or they deforested so they completely destroyed their ecosystem, that sort of thing. And, and it uh, basically touched on uh, a lot of the fact that it wasn't exactly true. What they found in a lot of the areas that they would actually, uh, they preserved the soil by using rocks for a, uh, a mulching technique, and I did not know if this has been practiced uh, since then uh, or if it was more just for tropical 
climates where there was a lot more rainfall um, or whether or not the more volcanic rocks that they were using for this uh, and what was, you know, surprised their island, uh, you know, made this more conducive to that sort of environment. Uh, you know, I have heard of using, uh, you know, charcoal and stuff like that for mixing in the soil to help retain water and those types of systems. I didn't know if this worked the same way, but it helped preserve a lot of the soil where in areas where this was not done, and then it was eventually turned into basically just sheep grazing by uh, Europeans who came to the island later. Uh, you know, it had completely destroyed a lot of the area where, where you know, the soil had just kind of washed away and blown away, while the areas that uh, when the Europeans first looked at it, it was just full of rocks, and they couldn't, you know, figure out how these people were, were living off of that because it was just a rocky area, which didn't make any sense to modern or semi-modern agriculture techniques. Uh, but in fact, it was preserving the soil, uh, and they were growing around uh, in those, those areas. So if you could speak on that, I'd appreciate it. Uh, love what you do, and uh, you know, appreciate all you do. Bye. Bye. Well, I, I think that when we hear the term mulching with rock in the United States, we think of like gravel, little lava rocks like going a gas grill, uh, river pebbles, uh, river stone, small rocks, and, and a deep mulch. Does that work? Yes. Do I like it? Not so much. And the reason is that the person that does that is going to be generally predisposed to everything that falls on the rocks needs to be blown off or raked off so I can see my pretty rocks. And that means there's not going to be a lot of new organic material getting to the soil. If you can mulch with rocks and just leave it the hell alone, all types of little critters will come up through the rocks and, and worms and things like that and take that material down into the soil and it'll be just fine. I still don't like it as much. And uh, But I will tell you that in my time where I ran an underground construction, company, uh, underground construction company, there were times we had to deal with in-place landscaping and move stuff out of the way. I pulled and saw my guys pull back enough rock like that to tell you that the soil underneath that rock is almost always moist. Now, generally, you're in a place where somebody's irrigating to, but it's almost always moist even when everything around is dry, and it looks pretty damn good. What I prefer, and I don't know anything about Easter Island other than the big heads and how did they get where they are. Um, <laughs> but what I'm guessing is that the rock mulching techniques that were done there were much larger rocks. And if you're using large rock mulch, especially leaving gaps between the rocks, what you're doing is creating an environment where the rock surface, when any water hits it, whether it's irrigation or rain, is 100% runoff. And if it's a highly mineralized rock, some of those minerals are probably going into the soil too. So you, you already have that. So the water hits those rocks, and if they're placed in an arrangement so that the ones that are furthest away from the plant lean into the plant, they actually increase the amount of catchment of water to the plant's root zone. So that makes a lot of sense. The other thing is when we're growing things in nature, And following natural patterns. One of the greatest things we can do is put as much texture in the landscape as possible. This is why things like hugel beds and swales are so awesome. Big texture formations into the land. Well, the problem with us as a species is we get locked into something. That's texture. Well, texture is anything that isn't flat and smooth. So modern agriculture, modern gardening, we want everything flat and smooth. Rocks create texture. Ups and downs, bobbles and dips. And textures 
create catchment not just for water but organic matter. So if you rock mulch around your plantings, and this obviously works better for mostly perennials over annuals, as leaves and debris and organic matter blow through the area, they get caught in these little pockets and they break down there. And if you want to really compound it, if I was planting trees out in the field, trying to establish a little food forest or something like that, and I was going to rock mulch, I would bring in tons of leaves and wood chips and compost and all the stuff that you normally mulch around your tree, and I would mulch the shit out of it, and then I would put my big rocks on top of that. That's going to hold it in place. That's going to give a lot of material to feed the organic life in the soil, and you're going to create multiple zones of temperature. The other reason I don't like gravel, when you have like two inches, three inches of gravel, and it gets hit all day by the sun, when you dig that gravel up, It's hot, two inches deep. It's still it transfers the heat very well, which means it also dumps the heat very very fast. So, at times of the year, you'd want less heat and you get more with the gravel uh, or small stones. And at times of the year, you want to retain the heat. And the reality is, a lot of that heat is dumped very very quickly as soon as the sun goes away in the evening, and the gravel cools off very very quickly. A big rock takes longer to heat up, and usually a big rock, when you turn it over, if you feel the ground underneath it, it's quite cool. All right, so the rock's taking longer to heat up, but since it's, it takes longer to heat up, it's like a battery. If it takes longer to charge, it takes longer to discharge, and the the air temperature around the rock as it drops, the rock is going to end up dumping energy not just into the air and into the, the plant around it, but into the soil where it's making direct contact. It's going to be a slower radiating heat into the soil, so it will maintain the temperature of the soil. So I think rock mulching makes a lot of sense, but I think it makes a lot of sense with large stones placed in, in purposeful patterns around your plantings. And if you think about it, what happens when a plant grows up from the crack of a sidewalk? Right? This is where Roundup, like people just run for the Roundup because if you try to pull it out, you can never get all the roots. And if it's a, if it's a perennial, it comes back and it comes back again and again and again. If you let it grow, it'll grow huge and eventually it'll start breaking up the sidewalk. That's because it's totally sheltered under there. And well, how do worms get in there? They can go sideways, guys. Right? If you break up a sidewalk in a, in a good soil environment, Yeah, you'll find the you know the the where it meets the hard packed gravel or rock or whatever that the concrete seeped into. But when you get down to the soil level, there's usually all kinds of critters and worms and stuff down there. You want to find worms in the woods when you're fishing, start turning rocks over. So I think it makes a lot of sense. It is a natural style system, but I don't like it with bags of lava rock or bags of gravel or bags of stone, the zero scaping model. I I, I don't think it works as good as Having places where the soil, you know, has places where, where ground covers can get out and come over the rocks. Now we start to really get things good. Now think about that. We mulch with the rocks, big stones. In the cracks, we put deciduous ground covers in. The deciduous ground covers cover the rocks during the summer so that they're not absorbing a lot of heat in the summer. And even what I said otherwise was mitigated. Winter comes in, the deciduous ground cover drops its leaves, rocks exposed. Sun hits the rocks, rocks absorb all the heat, rocks dump the energy into the ground. We just moved your plantings up one or two zones. And the survivability of your plants during the winter has gone up. 
So I think it's great, but I think it's, it, again, it's not like just a, if you look and all you see is rock, I don't think you're going to have the results if you see lots of rock and lots of other things. Let's, uh, let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Matthew from Tucson, the warrior hunter on the forums, and I'm hoping to squeeze in two separate things. First, I've got a question about history. Uh, it's often said that history is written by the victor. Do you think that going forward that will no longer be the case? With the Internet and all the social media and access to sources worldwide, do you think we'll start to have a more balanced and fair view of what is going on or what has happened? Obviously, one would need to search from a variety of sources. Only using one source you know, from one country would provide a very skewed view. I'd be interested to hear your take on that. Um, second item is more of a comment, and I'm sure you've been getting blasted with stuff, but it's about Ferguson, uh, Missouri right now. I only started prepping about two years ago, and I've never seen anything like this in the U.S. while I've been paying attention to what's really going on, and frankly, it scares me in a good way. You know, I missed Katrina and, uh, you know, wasn't around for Rodney King, um, but this has really motivated me to make sure I do what's necessary for my family should something like this happen to my area. It brings up a multitude of situations to play out and run mental exercises with in order to cover my bases, and I hope that that can do the same for others. I fear this is only the start of this kind of thing here on our soil. Um, we've seen it happening around the rest of the world for the past several years, and now it seems to be happening here. I don't know if this will be an isolated event or if we'll start to see this type of civil unrest uh, you know, happen in many other areas around the country. So I uh, would love to hear your take on that also, if you don't mind. Um, so I love the show. Thanks for all you do. Bye. Um, I'm actually going to start with the Ferguson Missouri part, the second question, I'm going to come back to the history part because it will actually help me make my point with the history part. Because when I heard the history question, I had an immediate answer, and I thought that was a great question. The Ferguson part, I'm like, eh, okay, I'll do it. Because here's what I want to give a disclaimer first. You've heard nothing from me on Ferguson, Missouri. Do you know why? I don't know what the hell's going on there, and neither do you. And I'm talking about the original incident. We do not know if that cop just popped an unarmed man, or we don't know if that guy was trying to beat the hell out of the cop and he shot him in self-defense. We don't know, 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 we don't know. And all of you that think you do know are freaking brain dead, and you're fooling yourselves, and you're making a decision out of emotion, not logic, because you don't know shit. Somebody said, somebody said that Santa Claus was bringing me a freaking unicorn this year. And you know what? I didn't get a freaking unicorn. Did you? Okay, got it. You don't know jack shit yet about what really happened. You do know that ass clowns on both sides of the aisle from hundreds of miles away in the safety of their, their little fiefdoms, right, are lathering this up and trying to make it into a great big riot. Because trust me, the people with the jackbooted thugs, they want to riot, and the people that want to make out like they're victims want to riot. And they don't give a shit about anybody that dies in that town. They don't give a shit about anybody that gets killed in that town. And all the freaking drive-bys that are coming in, like Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson, should be smacked in the freaking face. They don't give a shit about those people. They don't give a shit about those people. They do not give a shit about those people, and they don't give a shit about you and the people in Congress making a big deal about it, they don't give a shit about those people and they don't give a shit about you. And Eric Holder walking in and going, I'm a black guy too, I understand. He doesn't give a shit about those people. He doesn't give a shit about those people. No one doing this gives a shit about you. You got it? I hope so. If you don't understand that, you will be completely misled and you will miss every lesson that comes from Ferguson, Missouri because you'll think there's a side that's right here and there isn't.
There isn't. There's an initial event. A cop shot a guy. He was unarmed. You know what? If you are six foot eight and you're trying to beat the shit out of me, I will pull my .45 out and I will blow the back of your freaking skull off and I will not apologize for it. You shouldn't have tried to kill me with your bare hands. You're bigger than me. You get to die. Got it? And that's, that's reality. Is that what happened? I don't know. Well, the cop was, you don't know shit. Don't say what the cop was. Well, the guy was, you don't know shit. You don't say what the guy was. Apparently, the guy's friend came out and said he did attack the cop. Is that true? I don't know. This is just like Trayvon Martin. I said, everybody, shut up until we get facts. And in the end, I think we got a pretty good explanation of facts. We didn't get it till the end. And people were lathering up both sides of that. And let me tell you something. In that case, they wanted a riot. In this case, they're making a riot. They want a riot. They want a riot. They want a riot. So, And I'm not going to say shit else about Ferguson, Missouri, until I know what the hell's going on. And if you tell me you know what's going on, from a standpoint of the initial event, you either have insider information, and please release it so we can all know, or shut up your lying. Because you don't know, you don't know, and one more time, you don't know. So quit liking shit on Facebook about either side of the issue, because you don't know. Got it? Okay, now, let's talk about the issue that the caller brought up, um, which is, number one, this scares me, and I need to figure out how to be prepared for it, and number two, I think this is only the start of this on our soil. It's the start of this on our soil because people on both sides of these issues want riots. They want riots. They want riots, and they are going to do everything they can to get riots. And there are people in this country, whether you want to accept this or not, from your position where everything is somewhat okay for you, that feel very attacked by the system. They feel very victimized by the system, and the inner cities is full of them. And they're not 100% wrong. Now, I did a show this week that talks about having your own sense of responsibility and pulling yourself up and getting out of it. But from some standpoint, the people in the social welfare systems in the inner cities have been victimized by the very system that claims to support them. That is part of the plan. It is part of the divide in society. And they agitate the divide, and they agitate the divide, and they agitate the divide. They want you to hate your fellow American because every ounce of energy you spend hating the guy over there for whatever reason de jour there is, is one less bit of energy and time you have to fix your own shit, live your own life, and above all, hold the people that are responsible accountable. The human mind only has the capacity to really focus on being pissed off at one group of people at a time. You say you're pissed off at everybody, but at any given moment, you're pissed off at this group. And if I can keep you pissed off at this person and this person and that, and I can keep you rotating around there, you're never really pissed off at me. See how that works? Because I'm the guy with the initial you voted for. It's not my fault. I'm on your side. These people all suck. There are also what I call 10% scumbag theory. There's about 10% of the people out there in any walk of life And I don't care if you're in, in beautiful, gated, lily-white communities or you're in the downtown ghettos of Chicago or anywhere else. About 10% of people walking around are scumbags. They will lie. They will cheat. They will steal. They will hurt you. They don't give a shit. They want what they want, and they want it now. The only thing that keeps them in check is fear. 
Fear that somebody will beat their ass back, somebody will shoot them, somebody will put them in jail, and they still do their scumbag shit, but they have to do it under the table and hide. When shit like this happens, they get to say, I'm protesting injustice against black America by stealing television sets. And you, my good American friends, sit and look and go, that's what all the protesters are doing. You need that! You need to be smacked in the head. Do you think that's what the protests are all about, stealing TVs? No, that's a 10% of scumbags stealing the TV, and that's the wedge that they're driving between you, and people are going, what the hell's going on here? Now, a lot of the people protesting think they know what happened, just like you think you know what happened. You think the poor cop was just doing his job, and he had to shoot the guy to protect himself. And they think the poor guy was just surrendering, and the cop shot him for no reason at all. And both of you are probably wrong. There's probably mistakes on both sides, and we don't know. Back to that. We don't know. We don't know. You don't know. I don't know. And they don't know. But the people protesting have seen enough abuse by law enforcement in their city that they're freaking pissed. Okay? Do you want us to understand the dynamic? They've seen enough cops abuse enough people, and we've seen enough cops to abuse enough people that we know what happens. And on the 10% scumbag theory, 10% of cops are scumbags. And I'm sorry to say this, but the 90% of you that ain't, you're lacking, you're found wanting, and you suck because you let those 10% do shit, and you don't stand up, and you don't do anything about it, and your chickens are coming home to roost and shit like this, and people are pissed at you too, because they know damn well even if you didn't do it, you let it happen. Do I have your attention, law enforcement community? You let this shit happen so many times that in this case, it's my gut is the guy that got shot, it was a legitimate shoot. I don't know that. I'm not stating that. My gut here is that cop saved his own life by using his weapon. And that if I was in his position, I would too. That's my gut. I say I could be wrong. We don't know. It doesn't matter now. It doesn't matter now. It doesn't matter now. Are you understanding this? You guys and law enforcement, have committed so many abuses. It's been so documented that people in this manner of thought that have built up momentum for a place to vent don't give a shit about what really happened. They don't care. They're angry. This is an excuse to vent their anger at you. And you guys show up and point guns at them. You think that's going to defuse the situation? The best thing that could have happened in Ferguson was everybody stepped back. You rob, you steal, you break a window, we're going to crack your skull and take you to jail. Otherwise, protest your ass off. And media, please do us a favor. Don't even pay attention to these people like they're throwing a tantrum in a kindergarten room. And it would be over by now. But no, no, no. No, we got to lather it up. we got to send out SWAT teams, paramilitary forces. we got to have cops shoving guns at people. Why? Because we want it to happen on both sides. And that's why you're going to see more of it. And you're going to get into a situation where both sides become more and more unreasonable. Law enforcement is going to be feeling more and more attacked because many of you in law enforcement are cowards that won't speak up to the actual abuses. So you're going to keep getting attacked until you get on the side of right. If your brother officer is committing an act of abuse, cops, listen to me. If you see a cop that you're serving with doing anything outside of what he's supposed to be doing in interacting with a citizen. And you don't walk over and say, hey, hold on a second, sir, just just sit there and pull him aside and say, listen, 
You're being a stupid dumbass here. You know what? I'm going to take over this situation. You're going to go over there. And we're going to talk about this later, but you're not going to abuse a citizen. Until you start doing that, this shit is going to keep happening. Because it keeps happening, because you believe in what you're doing, and you really are trying to do right, but you're being a coward. You won't stand up to the shitty officers in your ranks, and they're there. And I'm going to tell you this. Any cop on a force more than 10, I bet you have one. You know who he is, and I bet you're being a coward, and you're not doing anything about it. Quit your freaking job then. You're not qualified to be a security guard at a freaking mall if you won't stand up to the shithead on your force. Do it or quit. I mean that. Do it or quit. If you'll stand up, if cops will start standing up and singling out the shitty officers that are out there, because this shit, it's only a few bad cops. What if it was a few bad airline pilots? What if we had this many friggin' planes flying into the ground? This many planes flying off the end of the runway? Do you think anybody would stand for that? You cops that say that, would you? Would you be like, oh, it's okay, it's only a few bad pilots. It's a few bad apples. No, it wouldn't be acceptable. So it's not acceptable in your ranks. But if you don't do it, and my prediction is, you won't, because you're more worried about your pension than you are about reining in your own, Because you haven't done it for decades. Why would you do it now? You're going to keep getting attacked. You're going to feel maliciously attacked. And you're going to feel it's unjustified because you really are a good guy. And you really are doing your best. And people like Kotbach are going to keep lathering this up. And when it happens, and when it turns out that one of your officers was a vile piece of shit and murdered a citizen, and the citizens rise up against it, you're not going to care what really happened. You're just going to side with your side because you're tired of it. All right? Here's the other side. Same thing. Just like it's going on in Ferguson, Missouri right now. If video were released of this guy running up and punching this cop in the face four times before he drew his weapon and shot him, most of the protesters would not stop. They would not leave. They would say it doesn't matter. Because they're sick of the abuse. They're sick of it. They're sick of seeing cops target a person just because they're black. Don't say you don't do it because you're a liar. Now, you don't do it as an individual, I might believe you. Don't say it's not done in this country. Don't say that law enforcement organizations are not saying to cops, pull the black guys over and talk to them. If you say that, you're a liar. You can't possibly be speaking the truth if you say that. Now, where do we end up? We end up a a divided, angry society. I'm not angry at either side, I'm angry at both sides. Because I feel like I'm the only one, sometimes, with a voice of sanity in the middle of this going, it's not them, and it's not them, it's the people in power that have set up this dynamic, that have put you at odds with each other. That's what it is. That's what it really is. You think the average person living in the ghetto really wants somebody next door to them dealing crack? And they think you, you think they're really upset with the police if you get in there, do your job, and shut that shit down? No. Unless they're the one dealing the crack, and then I don't care. This is going to keep happening because the people of this country are this stupid. And the way to be prepared for it is have all the stuff you need. And this is when people like, I love them, but Stephen Harris says, why would you ever want to bug out all your good stuff's at your house? Because you live in Ferguson, Missouri, and the town's about to be set on fire because things go a little further than they are right now. That's one reason. I can give you a bunch more, but here's an exact reason to have a bug out plan. 
exact reason to have a bug out. This is a reason not to live in a place where this type of thing happens. You'll note that this shit's not spreading into the outer suburbs and, and semi-rural areas. And it ain't going to. Because the people that are doing this shit, and understand that most of the protesters believe in what they're doing, they think they're doing the right thing, and then the people leading them are mostly people with their own agenda. Just like on the other side, most of the cops think they're doing the right thing, but the people really ordering it from the top know exactly what they're doing. You know if you set this up this way, you're going to create this tension. But the people that believe they're doing the right thing in the protesting group and the people, and the people that are the ringleaders of the bullshit know if they go out and start trying to tear the windows off a house in suburbia or further out in a semi-rural area, they're going to get killed. And they know that. So they don't want to go there. So the way you be prepared... Be prepared to leave and try not to live in a place like this in the first place. And I'll tell you what, if I got to drive through a riot to get to work, I'm not going to work that day. You want to fire me? Go ahead. My lawyer will be contacting you for doing so. I will. If you fire me because I didn't show up for work because there was a riot between me and my workplace, I will own the damn company in two weeks. You guys that own companies that are in places like this, you better start figuring out ways when people can't get to work how to run your company without those people coming in. Because it's, it's, if that person, if that person feels their job is risked and they, they have to go through a riot or a quote unquote protest, it could be a riot to get to work and they get killed because you told them if they didn't show up, they didn't, they don't have a job anymore. You're responsible for their death. You are responsible for the, are you as responsible as the person who hit them in the head with a brick? No, but you bear a responsibility for your employees when you tell them shit like that. I remember a totally different situation. There was an ice storm. And the people at my, my wife's work were giving her guilt for not coming in. I said, you give me that phone, I'll explain it to them. And that ended that. She said, I can't come in. And she hung the phone up. Because I was going to explain it very, very, very simply. We, you're not, we're not going to put ourselves at risk to, to, because you're inconvenienced. So you have to have these plans. Now, how does this all feed into the original question about will history be written differently in the future? Not until people stop being stupid. Because <laughs> right now the history is still being put down in the dichotomy. Black and white, rich and poor, liberal and conservative. Two dialogues that are completely untrue to the reality of what's going on on the ground. Um, another thing I haven't said much about is the ISIS crap. So we have one person on the blog that's insisting that we did not give money to ISIS. So I provide all this record, and he says, none of it says we gave the money directly. I, I, I'm done. I'm not pushing a string. I'm not pushing a string. We've been funding all these splinter groups in, in the Middle East, and we have weapons right now in the hands of these yo-hos at ISIS that are U.S. made or, or provided with U.S. dollars weaponry. We have one group that's basically said, thanks for the anti-tank weapons. We're going to use them as freedom fighters in Syria. But as soon as we're done with that, we're going to turn them on Israelis. Publicly stating this. <laughs> What's going to change about the history being written there? Just because the internet has the truth and the lies? I mean, there's so much misconstrued bullshit on both sides on the internet as well. People trying to tell the truth are telling a lie. They don't know they're telling a lie. They just know that the mainstream's lying. So they believe every single thing that a guy like Alex Jones says with no cooperation, right? So I'm telling you that our money's flowed into ISIS 
because all these groups are all intermingled, and we don't know what the hell we're doing, and we're just giving money, and we're giving guns, and we're giving supplies to anybody that seems like the enemy of our enemy, because we're a bunch of idiots. And you got a guy like Alex Jones, I don't know what he's saying about ISIS, but I would guess it's something along the lines of the CIA is working directly with them right now. Come on. Might be, but you don't know that. Don't go saying shit like that if you don't know it. So I don't think we're any closer to an accurate historical record right now than we've ever been, though I think we're much closer to having the ability for that to be the case. If people start meticulously recording the truth, consolidating it in an encyclopedic manner, maybe. But right now, what's the truth about Ferguson, Missouri? The truth is we don't know. But no one's saying that. No one's saying that. The officer had to shoot the guy. The guy was an unarmed victim. Those are your two stories. It's almost a given that neither one of those is 100% true. If I was guessing, and I want to be very clear that I'm guessing here right now. If I was guessing, I'd say it's probably most likely that the cop probably did something to agitate the situation and maybe in some way was being threatening or abusive to the individual. That the individual responded to that and went over the top, leaving the cop in a place where there was no choice other than to use lethal force, but it may not be that the cop bears no responsibility for that occurrence. Who's guilty, who's innocent? Don't know. That's what that's what courts of law are for. Is what I just said what happened? No. I, I it probably isn't exactly that way. Is it most likely that it's closer to the truth? than what either side is saying happened right now. Because one side is, he was standing there with his hands up and his back to the cop, and the cop just shot him. And I don't, you know what, a guy that's going to do that's probably done a lot of other things before. We don't have a, a big list of like claimed abuses by this cop or anything. And, you know, that's just not likely. Is it impossible? No. But it's not likely. And then the other side is, you know, maybe the cop wouldn't do nothing except his job, and the guy just started caving his face in, so he had to shoot him. I, I, I don't think that's likely either, right? But there's people that are absolutely convinced that they should stand by this cop. And there's people absolutely convinced they should stand by the guy that's been shot, and they don't know shit. They've made a decision on where they fall on the divide. And believe it or not, it's not really black and white. There's a lot of white people that are on the other side of that divide. They're tired of the abuse of police officers. I'm one of them. I'm just still logical enough to go, I don't know what happened here. And what happened here does matter. But I'm telling you, more and more people, cops, more and more people, because you stand idly by while your 10% victimizes society and don't do shit, are getting to a point where I don't really care what happened here. It doesn't really matter what happened here. What matters is I know what happens every day, and if this is the place we make our stand on it, then fine. And that's a very dangerous place we're getting to. And again, here's how we're getting into that dangerous situation. This is what makes it dangerous. We're getting into a situation where when the conflict erupts, neither side really cares anymore what really happened that one time. If... Uh, 
there's a, a conflict because a, a citizen was beaten or tased or shot, and it turns out that that citizen was uh, a violent, dangerous individual, that, that and the officers acted within complete reason within the, the grounds of the situation and completely legally, the people that say that cops are abusive don't care. And if the cop was abusive, his fellow officers and the people that always come down on the side of law enforcement say they don't really care. They won't be blatant about it yet, but it's coming. I'm seeing it more and more. And when we get there, you'll get riots that make Rodney King look like a day at Disneyland. And that's where we're headed if we continue down this path. And that's the path that your people that are in charge of you, no matter which side of this you are on, have laid out for you. So then you have to say to yourself, am I going to be a freaking dumbass? And I'm going to walk this path. And boy, if you're a cop, you better be listening to me on this one. Am I going to walk this path that leads to this place? Because there's a lesson in Ferguson, Missouri. Whenever I hear the prepper community say, our law enforcement and our military will not fire on American citizens. Okay, bullshit. Bullshit. Well, Oath Keepers, Oath Keepers is about 65,000 members. Total prior service, active duty, and uh, enlisted military and police officers in this country, millions. Millions. And people shot over curfew at the beginning of this shit. Your law enforcement officers and your military will fire on civilians when they're rioting. Don't think they won't. On some levels, it's their job. But what happens when they start firing when they shouldn't? But you have an establishment that says they had to. What happens when you have people rioting in the streets because they feel that uh, a citizen was abused and they find out they weren't and they just say, doesn't matter, it's happened enough that it doesn't matter, we might as well run with what we have here. you got a nation on the edge of tearing itself apart. And the whole end game is you can put a bigger boot on everybody's throat in the name of safety. How do we get out of this? I know the exact formula to get out of this, but I feel that the people of this country are too divided, too ignorant, and too concerned with getting what they want for themselves for it to work. But I'll, I'll tell you what it is. It is for all of the people on the side of exposing abuse by law enforcement to stop baiting law enforcement officers into doing shit that they normally wouldn't have done. It's to stop being a bunch of dicks and running around and shoving a camera in every cop's face that you find. It's to stop trying to recite the Constitution and, and, and your state laws by line and section and code to every single cop that you find doing anything, including you know picking dog shit up and throwing it in the garbage can. Um, it's for you to be a sentinel, which means one who stands watch, which means when you see abuse, record it. If you can intervene safely, intervene safely. It is not to go cause it. So that's what one side needs to do. Another side is the side of the people that will riot and protest and burn shit to the ground when stuff like this happens. The 10% of them that are the scum, the only solution for them is let's free the jail cells up with all the people in there for using drugs. Let's put some people in there that are in there for stealing TVs and breaking windows. Because those people just need to not be free to do shit like that. And then the rest of them need to come to a point where they can say, 
we will protest peacefully, not under the auspices of being peaceful, but peacefully when we believe that we're right. And if we find out that we're wrong about it, it does matter. And we will not continue to defend a citizen who was actually dangerous and aggressive toward law enforcement. And it comes from the police that when you run into somebody who's baiting you, know you're being baited and don't be a child and be so easily baited. And number two, and more important, when you see your fellow officer doing something that's wrong, don't stand by and do nothing. Stop it immediately. Tom, come here. No, we're not doing this today. Let me take over. We'll talk about this later. Right now, there's a cop in some deep shit in California, and he should be. This is a cop many of you saw the video of. He's on top of about a 50-year-old black woman in the middle of a highway median, and he's, he's got his legs on top of her, and he's punching her in the face like he's in an MMA fight. And it's now the case that, oh, gee, it wasn't just taken out of context. This is exactly what happened. Because people said because the phone camera thing flipped over, like the guy was moving down the road and got blocked. It was edited together. You don't know what really happened. I know that a cop that probably weighs about 250 pounds and looks like he does train for MMA fighting pounded the piss out of a 50-year-old woman. That's what happened. Well, apparently, you know, it, it is what happened. And this cop is facing criminal charges now. I say good. But this is what nobody gets. There's another police officer that ran into that toward the end and assisted on the arrest. This man didn't run in and pull his partner off. You certainly didn't see this man really care about the woman because maybe he couldn't. Maybe he got there. Maybe he got there when that was already going on, and you don't know. Maybe the woman has a knife. You don't know. But once, once you get that under control, it didn't look to me like this guy did anything. If he didn't go to his, his superiors immediately and say, this looks like a case of abuse... He should go to jail, too. Maybe just as long. Why not? Cops, you know how this works. Let's say me and another guy rob a store. The other guy has a gun. He pulls the gun out and shoots the guy and kills him. I go for murder, too, don't I? You're an accessory. You're part of the crime if you don't do something. You're there to protect. Notice this before serve. Protect. Well... I understand where you're coming from. I understand the feedback loop that's forming. I understand that I'm just tired of this shit. I'm just tired of these people that think I'm an evil bastard, but all I'm trying to do is earn a living like everybody else, and I'm a good guy, and I'm out here trying to help people. And these cop block assholes are just running around shoving cameras in every cop's face. Some of those people, they're getting the camera shoved in their face because people like you are too much of a freaking coward to step up and do what needs to be done on your end. They're filling the vacuum you've created by holding the thin blue line of brotherhood and protecting all of your asshole fraternity brothers in a badge, the badge fraternity, whether they deserve the protection or not. So you have to start doing your job on both ends, which is first police yourselves, and you won't. And they have to start doing their job, which is, yes, look for those of you who are abusive, but not get in your face and goat you along and try to make you cause a problem, and they won't. And the people standing up and protesting on abuse need to actually care about what really happened and do so in a peaceful way, not a rioting way, not using an excuse to steal TVs and try to start a fight and a riot, and they won't. So you get more of this.
the other solution that I can see, and it may stop a lot of this, is every single officer out there, you guys get so much damn money spent on you anyway with all the gear and crap you have. How about a GoPro, GoPro camera mounted to every damn law enforcement officer streaming to a place where it can be audited by the public at any time? How about that? See, then we'd know exactly what happened here. There would be no out of context. We'd see everything from the officer's perspective exactly as it happened. I'm going to finish with that today, but I'm going to tell you something you probably haven't. A lot of you are going, ah, that's... Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. We could do that. And then a lot of this abuse, at least if a cop did it, we would know what he did. And, we, and they probably would reduce it. And all that's great. I've never, I've talked about this with cops, and a lot of them seem okay with it. And I've never heard the other side from either side on this issue. The, 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 the blowback, the problem that it would create. And it might be worth the problem to solve the bigger problem. But what it would do is it would largely impact what we would call officer discretion. There's a lot of times when police officers arrest somebody today when they would have let it go, but they're afraid what will happen if I let this guy go and yeah, he's at like he's right at the legal limit, let's say, and he's 15 feet from his house and I going to ruin this guy's life with a DUI and I've run his shit and he has no record at all, but if I let this guy go. And he goes into his house, goes into a fifth of Jack, gets back in his car and decides he's out and wants more and kills a couple people. I'm in deep shit. So I'm going to run this guy in, even though I really want to let him go. That happens now. Put a GoPro on every cop, how much more does it happen? How, much, how many more times does a cop that wants to use his discretion take something to an arrest out of fear of repercussions for not doing so? I can tell you, I know good cops that have had this exact scenario. And, and, and not the one I just gave you, but this one. Pull a guy over, 22, 23-year-old guy. Run his shit, no problem. Sniff in a car, pot. Look in the ashtray, dumbass has a half a doobie crammed in the ashtray underneath it. I got him. I got him on a marijuana possession charge. I'm in a state that hasn't seen fit to legalize this crap yet. I also know he's driving under the influence. But I'm looking at him going, yeah, he had a couple tokes. He's on his way home. No dash cameras really caught this. No GoPro on the cop. And the cop just grabs the thing and says, you know what? Don't be a dumbass and drive around like this. Get your shit together. Go home. I better not see you on the street again tonight. And pitches it or flushes it. It happens. There's good cops that try not to ruin people's lives with discretion over small infractions. Knowing, yeah, I can just write the guy a ticket for this, but this is going to really screw this guy's life up. And the cop's thinking, when I was in college, I, I smoked a lot of this shit, and I never bothered anybody, and I know this is all bullshit, and I don't want to enforce this law. What happens when you put a GoPro on him? And here you go. Here's the message in it all. When we can't self-govern... Others govern for us. And the whole problem, all these riots, all this abuse of power by police officers, all this feeling of being attacked by the good officers, all of it, all of it comes down to our inability to self-govern. And I'm not going to tell you that I think we're going to change that anytime soon as a, as a society. 
I think it's going to get far worse before it gets better. I think there's going to be things, again, that make Rodney King and Ferguson look like a day at Disney. I think that the, 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 the forecasted burning in the streets and stuff like that that's supposed to be around an economic collapse will be over shit like this. I don't think it'll be the end of the world as we know it, but I think it'll be the continuing end of our freedoms and liberties. And I don't think there's much that we can do about it as a society, but we can act as individuals. If I see a cop harassing a citizen and I think he's being abusive, I will record it. But I'm not going to jump up in his face and say, what are you doing? What are you doing? And cause problems and interfere. If I get pulled over by a cop and he makes reasonable requests of me, I'm going to comply with him. If he makes unreasonable requests of me, as long as I don't feel my safety is in question, I'll probably comply with those as well. But I'm going to file a complaint. The other solution, maybe we all need uh, cameras in our cars and on our persons at all times. And everybody does it. There's something about that, though, that people don't understand. It causes the goading. It causes the people getting in the cop's face and trying to make them do something wrong. Because you know if I can get them, I've caught them. Again, it comes back to self-governance, guys. Cop pulls you over, asks for your license, you're driving, give them your freaking license. Cop tells you you're being detained, you're being detained. I don't care if you agree, I don't care if you think he has grounds for it, you're being detained. Tell it to the judge, not the cop. According to state statute 103.5, no, he doesn't give a shit. He's not supposed, you know what, he doesn't have time to give a shit. He's operating under his training. You take up your complaints with departments and the court system, not with an officer on the street. But, no, no but. This is how we get where we are today with Ferguson, Missouri. This is how we get to a point where neither side gives a shit who's really right here. I'm telling you right now, if they brought out a big screen TV, like a movie, like a drive-in theater TV screen, you know, like one of the big giant ones, right now in the middle of the streets of Ferguson, and somebody did have video of this, and they played that video, and that video showed this guy that the cop shot attacking the cop and being shot in reprisal for the attack, most of those protesters would continue to protest and not turn around and go home. They don't really care about what happened this time. They care about what's been happening for a long time. And if we got the same video... And it showed the cops shoot the guy in the back. There's a ton of people that would sit there and watch it on Facebook and go, we don't really know what happened still. We don't really know. I mean, who knows what he was saying or like what happened before. This could have all been set up. And they will defend the cop. And as long as we're in that place, where the sides will remain polarized even when proven wrong, we're in a very dangerous place. So build your own life, build your own resiliency, and don't get pulled into the middle of this shit. It's a lie. No matter what really happened, what you're being told is a lie. And it's designed to control you and manipulate you, and it's Friday afternoon, and you don't have time for it. you got a weekend ahead of you. Make something out of it. Make something happen. Build your own life, for God's sake. And with that... This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Cheers.